I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah 3 in your Bibles. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when we were talking about why we are a non-age segregated church, we referenced just briefly Isaiah 3, talking about some of the problems uh, in society. We'll be taking that and building on it today as we talk about children and the family. Uh, This is the, the final Sunday, as I mentioned, where we're going to talk about the family. Next week, we're going to take the concept that we're speaking of today and translate it into the church. We're going to try to connect a few dots that I believe will be very helpful for our church. But first, as we remain just a little bit longer on children and the family, uh, we, we speak of the dramatic impact that culture, and specifically the cultural revolution, has had on culture and on families. That happening in the 1960s and thereabouts, and how dramatically things have changed in culture and family since that time. Young people rose up in rebellion against authority uh, as their response to society, and society instead, when society responded, rather than uh, calling those young people back under the authority of their parents, under, under authority in general, um, society responded by yielding that ground. In relation to the education system, in relation to uh, society as a whole, really, we folded, we gave in, we yielded to the younger generation. And we agreed with them in this. And by we, I mean the collective of society, agreed with our young people that we had failed them because we had placed upon them expectations. We had not allowed them to be free spirits. We were asking them, we, we were asking them to, to follow in the footsteps that had been placed, laid in previous generations for them. And we began the long and arduous process of making concessions to the younger generations. Family and education experts began to push a narrative that demanded that the family and society revolve around the child so that today we can understand society to be child-centric. Everything became on demand for the young. What we called a couple of weeks ago permissive parenting. If a child wants it or perceives a need for it, it is the duty of parents to oblige. Society began to revolve entirely around its young. Everything was for kids. And as I look back, I, I, I think of a few moments in life where there was, um, where there are points that stand out to me that at the time I, I really didn't know what was going on. I remember an assembly. And it was an assembly in second grade. And we all would pile into the gym in our public school and we'd sit there cross legged. And we'd have various assemblies. And one of these assemblies, I'll never remember, it felt so out of place because it was like a child propaganda assembly. I remember hearing Whitney Houston singing, We Believe That Children Are Our Future, over the the intercom. And it was all about how how important we are. It was a self-esteem child propaganda assembly. And I always thought it was kind of strange and out of place a little bit. Um, But as I grew and understood, I realized that, that, that the purpose was to to make me feel like I was the one, I was empowered, I was in control, that, that I was my own person and that I should listen to me. And that was the point. And this was 
many years ago, and I was very young at the time, and, and things have just been progressing since then. Now, in the same way we've spoken of the pervasive influence of, of, of age-segregated culture, how it has even perhaps unknowingly become natural in the church and in families, there's something about this child-centricness that has become pervasive, not just in culture, but also, again, in the church and in families. And as we look into the scriptures, there's something wrong with that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What role does a child play in the family? What is the mindset that our children should have in the family? How, what kind of a culture should our family have with relation to the relationship between parents and children, children and parents, and where does family play into that? And as I mentioned already, a couple of weeks ago we went to Isaiah 3, and we just mentioned in passing a couple of verses, and we're going to get to those verses. That's going to be the bulk of our um, text, the bulk of our study today will be those verses. But we can't just start there. Because if we did just start there, then I wouldn't be giving you the context necessary for you to have confidence that when we read those verses, it's saying what I'm going to tell you it's saying. So we're actually going to begin today by walking through the first couple of chapters of Isaiah very briefly, um, very simply, and laying a foundation, building it up to where when we hit the verses uh, of our text today, we're going to know what the Bible has been saying and then know why it matters to us Today, And I'll mention this a couple of times throughout, but as we read Isaiah's 1, 2, and 3, just in part, consider how closely it mirrors where we are in Western civilization today. And then when we realize that Isaiah is preaching judgment, know that that's not a good place to be. Let's begin at the beginning. Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah opens with extremely heavy words towards the nation of Israel. God tells them, Hear, O heavens, this is verses 2 and 3, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. So God says there's a problem in Israel. I am a father, I have my children, the nation of Israel, they are my children, but they don't know me. They've forgotten me. They've rebelled against me. Even an oxen knows his owner. He listens to his owner. He regards his owner. Even a donkey knows the master's crib that would be stable. He knows his own stable. He knows his place. He understands authority. Even the animals understand authority. But my children have rebelled against me. My creation has rebelled against me. My redeemed ones, my chosen ones have rebelled against me. And God calls them a sinful nation who has provoked the Holy One unto anger. Jumping ahead to verse 9, God says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. This is interesting, is it not? Now, as we consider the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture, it is one of the most scathing judgments on moral wickedness, right? It is a, it was a, 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 two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that were completely lost to moral depravity and wickedness. Completely lost 
to the very deepest of moral decadency. And God said, except there was a very small remnant in, in Israel, except there was a very small remnant of God's people who were doing right, the entire nation would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. The entire nation would be in completely moral, morally bankrupt. Two cities that were destroyed by the hand of God with fire and brimstone. And God says Israel is this far from being just like them. That's how deeply morally depraved Israel was in the eyes of the Lord that he's likening them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as he goes on, he actually calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, hear now, O Sodom, hear now, Gomorrah. He, he continues in verses 16 and 17 and he says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil from your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. So he exhorts them unto obedience. He exhorts them to do that which is just, to plead for those that are in need, to stand up for the oppressed, to judge those that need judgment, to do well, to relieve the fatherless and the widows, the most helpless in society, to stand up for them, not to ignore them. When you see a society fall into moral depravity, the most helpless in society are the ones that often become forgotten. The young and the elderly. Judgment becomes perverted so that you can't get a fair judgment unless you're wealthy or unless you have some position of influence. Corruption. God says if you want to avert judgment... You need to change these things. You need to seek justice. You need to seek equity. You need to seek that which is righteous. He continues in verses 21 through 23. How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts. And followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. So, beginning right here in chapter 1, God's telling the nation the outward actions that reveal their deeper moral problems. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. That means that the people in power are easily bribed. They are easily swayed to change opinions on the basis of personal gain and personal benefit. They're not as much interested in what is right, in what is true, in what is upright, as they are interested in what is best for me, or what is best for the people who are paying me, or of whom I am called to benefit, who are going to benefit me back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Corruption. He says that the princes are this way. They're rebellious and they're companions of thieves. You can't really tell the difference between the man of honor and the leader in the nation and the thief because they're in with each other. They're basically the same thing. It's just one of them is a thief in a position of power and the other is not. One of them is doing it through um, me through through more uh, societally acceptable means and the other one is stealing in societally inacceptable means. No loyalty to principle. No loyalty to truth. No loyalty to anything foundational. Loyalty to themselves. Loyalty to what will get them notoriety, fame, power, money. Might is right. 
power is the end-all be-all. Because of this lack of integrity, as we've mentioned, it, it reflects upon the orphans and the widows. When there is no integrity, when there is no truth, when those things are set aside, when principle is set aside, the weak in society are the ones who suffer first. The ones that are, are most helpless in society become ignored. If you don't have money, then big people with money can walk all over you because the system doesn't care about truth. It only cares about power. And so the weak, their judgments aren't they're not getting justice. Nothing is being done equitably for them because there's too much influence. There's too much corruption. This is the sign of a society that has turned away from the Lord. This is a sign of society that is in a place of moral bankruptcy, a place of evil, a place of wickedness. God warns them in verses 26 and 27. And I will restore thy judges at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of, right, of the right, of righteousness, excuse me, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. But God promises to change this. And this is one of the things I love about, about uh, prophecies of judgment. There's not a lot of pleasantness about prophecies of judgment other than when God is promising to judge the wicked. But when you read God's judgment, and you know that it's always because of wickedness, but it's not a pleasant thing to think about. It's heavy, it's hard, it's, it's, it's going to be a time of great wrath. But God always adds with judgment hope. He tells people He's going to judge them. But then He brings with it hope if they'll repent. And this is what He promises here, that He's going to restore righteous judgments. That He's going to make the city righteous and faithful once again. But notice how He says He's going to do it. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. In order to get you righteous, in order to put you where I need you to be, I'm going to have to tear you down before I can build you back up properly. And her converts with righteousness. Continuing into chapter 2, as we continue to lay this context, the message of judgment mingled with hope. He says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, Come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. God's promising that the proud will be made low, that the humble will be exalted, that the lofty and the evil will be brought down. He's telling them that there's a day where, excuse me, the idols will fail the people. Where everything that the people are trusting in, where all of those things they're hoping in, where everything that they've put their, their, their banking on, whether it's their money or their power or their position in the land or their allies, God says there's coming a day where none of that's going to matter anymore, where it's not going to be any good to you anymore, where you're going to throw it into a cave and you're going to say, these aren't helping me anymore, and you're going to turn to the Lord your God. And he says, why not now, O house of Jacob? Why don't we walk in the light of the Lord? Why don't we walk in God's light? So, this is what we're seeing here. This is the contrast that we're seeing. Truth, righteousness, equity, obedience, uh, submission, the light of the Lord. Rebellion, corruption, wickedness, evil, depravity, darkness. Judgment. Righteousness. That which is proper. That which is right before God. That which is the light of God. Keep that contrast in mind. Verses 20 and 22. 
God says, In that day a man shall cast his idol of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, into the caves, to go into the clefts of rocks, into the tops of the ragged rocks, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty, when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. See she from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of. So God describes this time. They will take their idols, their silver idols, their gold idols, everything they've been trusting in, and they'll throw it to the bats. They'll throw it to the moles. They live in caves. They live in dark places. They live in holes in the earth. They'll cast them out. They'll get rid of them. And God calls them to give up their trust in man, to give up their trust in idols, to give up their trust in man's philosophies, to take that which has been reflected of the world, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that has been reflected into this nation that is to serve God and to get rid of it and to become a pure people once again. And that's what he's calling them to do. Stop trusting in man. Cease ye from man. Look, why are you trusting so much in that which a bunch of other mortals has, have put together? They're, they're, they're fallible. They, they cannot be perfect. I am perfect. Trust me. And it's within this light that we get into Isaiah chapter 3. Now, perhaps you've already seen uh, the, the parallel between what God has warned about and our society, but it's going to get much more clear in Isaiah 3. So keep your eyes open as we read through it together. Verses 1 through 4, the Bible says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. And I give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. While this is a a judgment upon Israel, we can also see it in part as a template upon a morally depraved society. God says He will take away their honorable men, those in society with principle, with integrity, and with strength, that they will be left to those of young and experienced, petulant, and weak character. Gone in Israel society were the men of leadership. Gone were the judges and prophets who would keep the country going in the right direction. Gone were the men of prudence and wisdom. Now, God doesn't say why they are gone, but if we've already seen what we've seen, that the princes and the thieves are in collusion together, well, here's what happens, and you've seen this naturally. That when things become so corrupt, the man of integrity cannot stand. The man of integrity has nowhere to go. In, in a system of leadership. He is forced out by default because there is no capacity for him to be a man of integrity and also find the support he needs to get anywhere in a system. When society begins to crumble under the weight of moral decay, leadership becomes fulfilled with the worst that society has to offer rather than the best that society has to offer. The ranks of honorable men are gone. Even it says great artistic ability and eloquent speaking. If you've ever traced art through the centuries, if you've ever traced art from Greece going through the Roman Empire to the various stages of the Roman Empire into the Middle Ages and out of the Middle Ages into the Renaissance and into the Reformation and then through to today, you find that, that the art ebbs and flows. That you have art that will go from uh, beautiful and realistic, that which paints a, a, a worldview of hope and optimism, to 
basically just blotches on a page, right? And what is that reflecting in our society? Well, when a man who basically just puts blotches on a page can be regarded as a great artist, art has lost a little something. Art has degraded. And the arts are a very, very interesting tell to the state of a culture. And that's what this is saying. That as this culture is decaying, the cunning artificer, that would be the, the person who is cunning in, in sculpting and art and those sorts of things, uh, he, he's gone. The eloquent orator. All of a sudden you go from incredible, uh, incredible art through the written word and the spoken word to that which really has no business even being there. Now at this time there was not a lot of written word. But we can carry this over into written word today. If you open up a book from the 1800s and you read it, and you open up a book from today and you read it, you'll find a dramatic difference in writing quality, won't you? You'll find a dramatic difference in the degree to which thoughts are fleshed out. You'll find a dramatic difference in the degree to which um, there is a, 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 a um, quality to, to the plot, to thinking. You can even see it in movies when you compare stories and movies from generations and, and decades in the past to, the, to today's time. What's going on as we see everything, all of the arts, deteriorate in our society? Well, it's not the first time in society that we can see this cycle of art begin to deteriorate, of the great orator being gone, of the great artificer being gone, of, of those that have true quality in society not really getting much due. This has happened time and again. As society begins to morally decay, as truth begins to be put on the back burner or is removed altogether, it touches every aspect of society. It touches the arts. It touches politics. It touches everything. Instead of men of dignity, honor, experience, and leadership, all forms of respect are violated. The youth end up being princes. Indeed, in Israel's line... The seven kings following the reign of Hezekiah, not one king began later than age 25. They were all 25 and younger when they began. Many of them in their single digits when they began ruling. Why? Well, because there was no truth. There was no justice. There was no longevity because of evil choices and wicked men. More judgment in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, we read this. And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor, The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. So people oppressed by their neighbors. Everyone has turned against one another. They're oppressed by each other. There's no unity. There's no civility. There's uh, a, a general disrespect one toward another. Everybody is seeking their own. Everybody is, is, is forming into little pockets and they hate everybody else and there's anger and they're against one another. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient. The young in society, having lived off of the goodness and the initiative and the effort of the past generation, feel no inhibition about speaking against that generation. Rather than respecting and appreciating the elderly, the young will scorn their elders. They will reject the counsel of their elders. They will reject uh, the, the contributions of the elders. And then it says the base will speak against the honorable. Those in society without any honor who have not contributed anything positive, 
whose lives are defined by immaturity, selfishness, and excess, feel no problem with speaking up against those who are honorable, who have actually produced, who have actually contributed, who have led the way. Those that are doing what is, is best for society and those who are, who are doing it in an honorable way are, are spoken against by those of dishonor. These are marks of a wicked society, of a civilization on the decline, of natural judgments that sin bring to a society. Continue in verses 3 through 8. When a man shall take hold of his brother, of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be our ruler. And let this ruin be under thy hand. And that day he shall swear, saying, I will not be an healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not ruler of the people, for Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory. So God looks toward a time in the nation of Israel when there will be such a lack of nobility and leadership where the nation will be such a mess that they'll grab the first person that has any uh, indication of, of honor, any indication of wealth, a man that has clothing. That means he has several changes. Not that he just he's wearing anything, but he has several changes of clothing. That would mean he's a man of some means or a man that has some sort of property. And they'd say, hey, look, you have some property. Why don't you become our ruler? It doesn't matter about your qualifications. Just take care of this mess. You rule over this mess that we have created. And he'll say, I don't want it. I don't want this mess any more than you do. I don't want to be a part of this. I know this isn't pleasant stuff, but play with, uh, stay with me here. We're, we're almost to our destination. Verses 9 through 11. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, they, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given. Not only was the society crumbling under the weight of immorality, lack of integrity, God having already described their actions as being similar to those of Sodom, but then he states that the society will not only do these evils, and what makes them so close to Sodom is that they don't just do the evils, but they take pleasure in them. They, they pronounce them. They are proud of them. They openly declare their sinfulness in the streets rather than be ashamed of it. Uh, there are, are many people in many a society that do evil things, but when a society is, is in, a, in a place of health, they can't openly admit it. They won't openly admit it. They're afraid of it. They, they, it's not that they won't, they don't want to do it, but they would be ashamed if they got caught or that it has to be hidden in the shadows. Uh, the evil has to scatter to the dark shadows of society. It can't come out into the limelight. Society won't allow it to do so. But as the society falls deeper into moral depravity, the wickedness uh, becomes something that, that they rejoice in, something that they're proud of. It becomes a mark of pride in that society. Paraded in the streets, not hidden in its depths, not ashamed, but paraded. And within this context, God paints a definitive contrast. God sees the righteous, God sees the wicked. And He says, don't worry, righteous, it will be well with you. But wicked, you will receive the reward of your wickedness. Have you seen the Western world in these verses? In Isaiah chapter 3? 
Men of dignity, honor, and integrity sorely lacking in the leadership of our land. In fact, it takes a general willingness to compromise on principle in order to function in the highest offices. People oppress one another. A nation deeply divided along ideological lines. They see those that disagree with them on anything as their enemy. The morally depraved are regarded as heroes in our society. Nothing is beyond societal acceptance today. And any call to righteousness, any time we would call any action wrong or evil or sinful or wicked, we're regarded as a stain on society. It's very similar to what we find in our culture today. And that should not surprise us when we consider what our topic is today. As we talk about children in the family and children's place in society. We've, we're there with children. Why would it surprise us that we're there with all of these other aspects as well? So as we summarize our context, verse 12, we're going to jump into our content. The context is this. Israel had rejected God and was living societally in moral wickedness. God highlights those aspects. He marks them not as virtues or as characteristics, but as evidences of the natural destructive force of sin in society. That's our context. Now he's going to continue this in verse 12. These are several more marks of a society that is backward, that is not right. He says, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. So the next two evidences of a culture that has rejected God, that is living in moral decay, is that their children oppress them and women rule over them. This word oppress, children are their oppressors, is, this, uh, is a Hebrew word that is used to describe one who is being driven by another. It's used in Exodus chapter 3 to describe the taskmasters that were over the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. They were their oppressors, the same word. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 15 to describe a creditor who is calling in another man's debts. That that creditor is his oppressor. It is the one who has control over him. It's the one who's driving him. This is the flavor of this idea. And it says that as for my people, in this society that is backward, that has lost its way, morally, children are their oppressors. And women rule over them. Now, our, our focus will be on the children aspect today. But the scriptures go on to talk about this idea of women ruling over them. Uh, and as it does so, it also says that the women have stretched out necks. Um, excuse me. That the women have stretched out, uh, out necks. Uh, verse 16, moreover... The Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, proud, and they walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. That would be women who are provocative. Women who are not, um, are, are not walking in submission and are not walking, um, in appropriateness and virtue, but rather their, their, their necks are stretched out and their eyes are always looking for something. They're craving. A lack of integrity, a lack of virtue among the women. And this is where our points rest today. Children oppressing society, women ruling over it, 
one of the several marks of a society that has fallen into decay. Now remember, as we talk about these concepts, as we always say when we talk about any, any concept of women leading or ruling, this is not a statement that implies that women are second-class citizens. That they are incapable of leadership. Only that God has designed women to have a different role in society than men. God has equipped women for that societal role. And they are best served within that role. And when they step outside of that role, it's a general rejection of God's design. And it cannot lead to God's best. In the family, in society, in any circumstance, it cannot lead to God's best for that that situation when the women have usurped authority over the men and are leading. That's not the role that God has designed for women. doesn't make you second-class citizens. It's just a different role. Now, God goes on in verse 16, as I mentioned, to talk about these women as with stretched forth necks, wanton eyes. They are indiscreet. They are unchaste. They are shameless. That's the marks of, a, of, a, of women in a society that has fallen into decay. And I think a, a week ago, we saw that march in Washington that reveals just how much our nation is leading toward that direction. A march that was full of moral decadence, of unchastity, of indiscretion. It was a shame on our society that day was. A shame in every way, that women's march. Much to the contrast of the march last Friday, right? Which was very dignified. Which was not a group of people... uh, uh, displaying themselves in lack of dignity and and, in unchastity, but rather a very dignified occasion meant to draw attention to a very important issue. This is that division, right, in society, where neighbor hates neighbor, neighbor is against neighbor. It's right where our society is. But the point today is the children. Because as we mentioned in our introduction, the general attitude towards children in society has changed dramatically since the Cultural Revolution. A child-centric philosophy became dominant, where our children are given everything and so expect everything, but which of which society expects nothing. It's a society where children are given privileges but have no responsibilities. A society of participation trophies, where the primary goal is to affirm a positive sense of self, regardless of whether or not it is justified. Now, we look at these aspects of culture and we see the natural imbalance. But what we might fail to do is appreciate just how integrated into Western culture this mindset is, the child-first mentality is, so that it might even touch and influence our own homes. Where homes become overly child-centric, where the children dictate everything about the home and everything about its schedule, where children are given privileges without bearing responsibility. Last week, we considered the individual model of Christian growth, and we used that model to help us as parents understand how to help our children take those steps of Christian growth, that we are to be a guiding force in our children's lives, purposefully acting in a way that cultivates our children's spiritual maturity after they have accepted Christ as their Savior. This week, we we speak of helping our children understand not just that they are an individual, that they are to grow in the Lord, but to understand that the world is not about them. And by the way, that their spiritual life 
is not about them. That, the, that, that your existence as a believer is not about you. We all need this. We need to be teaching this to our children from a young age. We need to help our children understand that they are playing a part. They're fulfilling a purpose. That they are a small part of a much larger whole. A family in which children are the oppressors, where the children drive the family's direction, is a family out of balance. Now, especially in our circles, where moms oftentimes remain at home, where in many cases the moms have chosen to homeschool their children, children naturally play an important role and a prominent role in any given day. This is not the problem we're talking about. We're not talking about a mother who has devoted herself to serving her family. We're talking about parents who have, who have wrapped themselves around their children. There's a difference. And, and I, I hope that we can understand that distinction uh, a, a little bit today. The problem is when children become the driving force in the direction of the family and the home, the decisions in everything, beyond the scope of their contribution to that family, beyond the scope of the needs of the family. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about the character of the Industrial Revolution, where children were going to work six days a week, at minimum 12 hours a day in factories to make very little money. Now, it goes without saying that we should see this lifestyle as a problem, right? This is not necessarily a positive thing, that children would be forced into long hours at exceedingly low wages, being taken advantage of for the purpose of simply sustaining their family. We don't. I'm not saying that that is right, but you know what I am saying? There's something right about a child who would want to help his family in time of need. There's something right about a child who would feel some pull to serve his siblings and even perhaps his parents when there's a great need. Who would feel a draw to that out of love and duty and respect and honor. There's something right about that. Now, it should not lead our children into slavery. The, the outcome was not right, but the, there, there's something right about the attitude. The philosophy that when the family is in need, the children become a part of the solution. They, they, they become more than just the kid, and they become a help. It's the kind of philosophy that it prepares a child for a life of personal responsibility, accountability, and thus success. And as we're seeking to cultivate maturity in our children, to raise them on purpose, which is what I said last week, we need to be parenting on purpose. And by the way, parents, we need to have this mindset too. We need to formulate this mindset as well. We have an opportunity through the structure of our family, through the culture that we create in our home, to help our children understand that life is bigger than just what they perceive or desire or the limitations even that they see. That there's something bigger. And if they can see it on the physical, then they ought to be able to understand it on the spiritual. And that's essential. Essential. The concept we speak of today is what we call a servant's heart. A constant looking out towards the needs of others. And this is... What Christ has called us to be. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. 
And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is the context within which we are supposed to think about life. This is how each of our children ought to think about life. That when they look at greatness, they ought not see greatness as the man that's hoisting the Lombardi trophy. They should not see greatness as the man who made it to the Oval Office. They should not see greatness as the man who's the CEO of that multi-billion dollar company. That should not be their definition of greatness. Unless the man that's the the CEO of the multi-billion dollar company gets down on his knees and washes someone's feet. Then that child can look at him and say greatness. Metaphorically, of course. Right? Unless that man who's in the Oval Office does everything he can to serve those that he's supposed to be serving, then there's greatness. Unless the man that's hoisting that Lombardi trophy does far more for others than he does for himself, then there's an element of greatness because the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, But this, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. Looking out, Serving others, blessing others, meeting the need of others, loving others. This is the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the mark of one who is properly following Christ. And the best lesson on this is Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, and I, I go here quite often. This is Paul teaching the, Philipp- the church of Philippi about the mind of Christ. What it means to take to, to, to assume Christ's mindset, which ought to be really the very essence of our lives, the goal. If you're a born-again believer in this room, this is your goal, to assume the mind of Christ. He says in verse 3 through 5, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ became a servant. He did wash his disciples' feet. He did serve them. He served the multitudes. And then what did he do at the end of his life? He died for us. His life from beginning to end was about other than himself. And Paul says, if you want to have the mind of Christ, look around you. And everyone you see is better than you, is more important than you, is higher esteemed than you. When we talk about developing a servant's heart, we understand this is a natural propensity in a believer who is following Christ. Because if you're following Christ, this is the direction he's leading you. This is what the word of God leads you into. This is what the spirit of God cultivates within you. He is naturally predisposed to becoming like Christ, to walking in the spirit of Christ, if he has Christ in him, and this is the direction he goes. And the years of a child's physical maturation, as he is physically maturing, when he is under the direct authority of his parents, are intended to be years when he is learning, by word and by deed, the essence of the Christian life. 
And then once they have accepted Christ as their Savior, then they are to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He should see in his home examples of the Christian ideals all around him. By, ideally, he should see it in his home. He should see it in husband and wife. Uh, he should see it in siblings. He should see it in the church. He should see it in every place where believers are operating and interacting one with another. Where Christ is magnified, where Christ is taught, but where Christ is also exemplified. And in God's economy, the family is ground zero for training on how to serve one another. It's the smallest institutional unit of measurement in which a young person can learn to look beyond himself and to serve others at the expense of himself. And this is the culture, parents, that you've got to foster in your home if you want them to learn this concept to the best possible degree. A concept where the family becomes a unit within which we are busy serving one another. That's the point. It's not sibling rivalry. It's sibling servanthood. Now, will that always work? They're human. They're sinful. But this is the ideal that we're aiming for. That our, our children are learning that the essence of every day is how can I get up and serve mom, serve dad, serve brother, serve sister. What can I do to serve one another? Because this is what Christ is. This is what he did. And this is the unit within which I interact the most and I can learn this stuff. But when children become the oppressors, They instead learn entitlement, that they are, for no reason other than the fact that they exist, entitled to consume without any thought towards contribution. That they are, because they exist, entitled to have without any thought of giving. And we find this in many families today. Children are consumers, not contributors. When they're asked to contribute, even in a small way, to serve someone else in the family... They resent it because they have a mindset of consumption rather than a mindset of service. So children become the oppressors in the family, and soon then this carries those children grow grow up, and that becomes society, right? The generation which we uh, have seen come into adulthood most recently is Generation Y, called the Millennials. They range from being born in the early 1980s to the early 2000s. It's the first generation that grew up entirely on the fruit of the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, a generation shaped largely by permissive parenting and the proliferation of technology in everyday life. I'm a part of this generation. What's apparent about this generation is the overall spirit of entitlement, right? It's it's unmistakable in this generation. A spirit that has no interest in serving others, but much to the contrary, demands to be served at every turn. A spirit that insists that culture and society and daily function conform to them, to their feelings, to their desires, and to their ambitions. Where did this come from? It didn't come out of thin air. It came from homes, and by extension, schools, which, whether by intention or not, raised these young people to become adults that believed that they are priority number one, that everyone should revolve around them. My parents revolved around me, so why shouldn't my boss? My parents revolved around me, so why shouldn't my government? And as the government and, and uh, other social institutions take the role of the family, 
Isn't it natural that if this is the way the family works, that I'm a, I'm a child and everything revolves around me and it's all about consumption, then why shouldn't the government treat me that way? Why shouldn't my employer treat me that way? The love of self is the epitome of existence, right? I'm successful as long as I look at me and I love me. If I can look in the mirror in the morning and say, you're successful and I love you, then it's going to be fine. Except not everyone thinks that of me. And I haven't done anything to earn the badge successful. We grew up thinking that everything that we think matters, no matter how mundane, trite, or incorrect. My, uh, when, when my sister started school, she's two years older than me. My, my sister would come home with, with spelling words and they were spelled incorrectly. And my mom took those to, to her teacher and said, these words are spelled incorrectly. And she said, well, we're doing this new method of spelling where we don't correct them when they get it wrong as long as, they sound, as, long as it sounds right. We don't, we don't correct them when it's spelled wrong because they're sounding it out and they're learning it on their own. My mom said, okay, I guess we'll try that. And to this day, my sister has trouble spelling. When uh, fortunately, I was the beneficiary of those two years of error, and my mom said, it's phonics for you. So I can spell pretty well. This is the kind of society that we've grown up in, though. Where I'm not going to tell you you're wrong because it could hurt your feelings and you're trying real hard. Right? And now we're bearing the fruit of that generation in the workforce, in society, in the, in, in the voting population. To sum it up, we find ourselves living in the fruit of a generation where children were oppressors. And now those children are grown up and they don't know how to serve, they don't know how to defer, they don't know how to wait their turn. And this attitude has touched every aspect of life. It explains our welfare state and why it's out of control. It explains the arguments over health care and college tuition and abortion that came up uh, that are regularly coming up. When I am my own God and suddenly I... Uh, become angry when I must defer to a higher, higher more moral authority, uh, a greater need than my own. I, I can't handle that because I've never had that before. I haven't learned how to function in a way that defers what I want to the needs of others. Pastor, then, are you espousing this idea that the collective is more important than the individual? Are you espousing the idea that, that the institution is more important than the individual? No, I am not. And this is something that I want to make clear, because as I walked into this study, I wanted to tell you, you need to be teaching your children that the family matters more than them. But I want to change that perspective just a little bit. I want to change the perspective from the family matters more to you that to this. The individuals in the family matter more than you. And let me tell you why. Because oftentimes it's been said that basically Christianity is just a type of socialism, right? Have you heard that before? That Jesus Christ espoused a socialistic philosophy and they talk about Acts, the early in the book of Acts where everybody sold everything and they gave it, uh, to, to those that were in need and everybody was as one and, and they, they were saying, see, this is a, a perfect model of a socialistic society. A society where, um, where we, we all pool for the needs, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. But this is not not what the Bible is teaching. And let's talk about this just, let's talk about the nuance here. 
Socialism and communism are founded upon the ideal that the collective is worth more than the individual. They inherently reject the notion of a supreme God, believing not that man is naturally depraved, but rather that man is inherently good, and that if his environment can be properly shaped, then he will become good because he is simply a a product of his environment. This is why permissive parenting came into effect. Because if we can create a permissive parenting culture, then we're going to create children that are naturally good and well-behaved because they've been treated in this way. Socialism, communism, it's the same general idea undergirding both, believes that the only hindrance to a man's personal perfection is the ills of society. Lack of education, income inequality and poverty, and of course a devotion to religious ideals that stifle the indomitable human spirit and shackle men to morality and divide them by ideology. They perceive the solution in compulsory education, forceful redistribution of wealth, and the abolition of religious devotion. And everywhere this philosophy goes, evil in humanity and poverty are sure to follow. And this is because the philosophy of socialism, communism, is a, it's a cheap copy by Satan of that which God has actually designed. We talked about this last week, right? That Satan has his definition of love that's different from God's definition of love. And Satan's definition of love is that it's an emotional feeling. And God's definition is that it's an, a, a, a choice to do what is best for the object of love. The, Satan's definition of love says it's all about me. And it's about what you can do for me. God's definition of love says it's all about you and what I can do for you. And we talked about this with happiness and joy. And we talked about this with peace. And we talked about this in several different contexts. Well, this is another one of those ideas. That Satan has erected this system that the collective is worth more than the individual. And that we need to somehow put the individual down and heighten the collective and then allow the collective to be the most important thing, the collective to be God. But we Christians are called to a different way of thinking, and it's evident in these verses. In socialism, communism, the collective is worth more than the individual. In the church, the collective, the church, is not worth more than the individual, but rather the individuals that make up the church, the individuals that make up the collective are worth more than you. Can you see the difference? Let each esteem other better than themselves. It is not that I am forced to give all that I have to the needs of the collective to redistribute so that everyone is materially equal. It's that rather I devote myself tirelessly to the needs of others and then as they devote themselves to me and I devote myself to them, it raises all boats. The collective is benefited as you and I love one another. Whereas the socialist-communist ideal cannot be rightly related uh, without a godless philosophy that believes man is inherently good, the church ideal can be rightly realized and the family ideal can be rightly re- realized. Uh, cannot, uh, it, it can't be realized outside of God's help. It can't be realized without this mindset of death to self, to self-love, to self-interest, to self-aggrandizement. Satan's cheap copy has fooled many but it's insufficient, insufficient, it's untenable. And our society in the last several decades has built on this concept that if we are going to defer one to another, it's going to be in this mindset that the collective is more important than the individual. No. It's that other individuals are more important than you. That's the mindset. So what we carry into the family then is not the idea inherently that the family is worth more than the individual. 
but that the family as a whole is most successful when each of us is serving one another, when each of us is deferring self-gratification and selfish interest to the needs of the family. And the best example of this in the family will be the husband and the wife. That as the husband pours himself 100% into the wife, and the wife pours herself 100% into the husband, regardless of what they're getting for it, and regardless of if the other one is, is pulling their weight, there is a natural example of this philosophy. That my, the wife is, is tirelessly devoted to serving her husband, whether or not he deserves it, whether or not he is giving it back. That's what God says. That the husband is tirelessly devoted to the needs of the wife, whether or not she deserves it, whether or not she's giving it back. And as this happens, this is the framework within which the family is called to operate. Now we add children. Let's just do the same thing. Let's just do it over again. Let's just expect that our children are, are busy every day tirelessly serving one another. And that the parents are busy every day tirelessly serving their children. And so we have this environment where the culture is, is just dedicated to serving one another. They devote their lives in the family not to the, their best interests, not even necessarily to the best interests of the collective, but rather to the best interests of every individual in the family. And as we exist to serve one another, then we all prosper and the family itself becomes successful. I hope you can see the difference between trying to serve this ambiguous entity, a collective entity, versus serving one another in it and then making the family thus successful. And this needs to be the culture in our home. We are not a random assortment of people trying to get ahead. We are a father and a mother tirelessly serving one another. We are children tirelessly serving one another. We have been placed into a family, into a, a, a place of godliness and a love, a place where children aren't the centerpiece, but where rather everybody but you is the centerpiece in your eyes. The life of the family does not revolve around the child, its wants, its whims, its ideas. Neither does the life of the family necessarily revolve around the parents, their wants, their whims, their ideas. Now then, you need a leader, you need a director, you need a father directing the way that, 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 that the family should go. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, we're serving one another. The, family, the, the parents are naturally going to lead that. So there's naturally going to be choices being made by parents without consulting their children. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about a mindset, a, a culture of service where we're revolving our family around one thing and one thing alone, and that's Jesus Christ. His call to love and serve one another. Each family member does what is best for the individuals around them, even at personal cost. And this works itself out in many ways. As families, husband serves wife, wife serves husband. So siblings serve each other. Uh, children serve their parents. Parents serve their children. Working together to do things. Seeing it as your reasonable service because that's what we do. We serve one another. This is what Christ expects of us. And as children learn how to serve others, how to esteem other better than himself, they learn how to live these ideals beyond just the family unit. They'll grow to serve society in this way. They will not be blindly loyal through some patriotic zeal to a collective idea. They will not be blindly insistent that some collective serve their needs. Instead, they'll say, well, wait a minute. As I grew up, 
I loved and served others. Others loved and served me. Isn't that how society should function? Makes sense to me. In each of these cases, it is not the collective itself that becomes the object of worth so that we attempt to make the collective thrive at the expense of the individual. We don't want to try to make the church thrive at the expense of the individuals in the church. We don't want to try to make society strive at the expense of the individuals in society. And we don't want to make families strive at the expense of the individuals in in the family. Rather, as we carry into these institutions that mindset of Christ, of selflessness, where each serves others, even at the expense of himself, not only then do we all thrive, but then the collective thrives as well. I hope you can see the difference. This is why good Christians make good citizens. They're not good citizens because they're blindly patriotic. They're good citizens because they have a mindset to serve others. And this concept carries us over into the church, which we'll talk about next week. And what it means for us in relation to the church, we'll discuss that together. Children and the family, however, was our topic for today. And the point is this, children... Life is not about you. The family does not exist for your benefit. You are special because you've been created in the image of God. God created you. God loves you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. So that you could have a personal relationship with him and you could live in fellowship with him for all of eternity. But life is not about you. Your Christian life is not about you. It's about God. Life isn't learning about loving yourself. It's about learning to love God. Life isn't about believing you are beautiful just the way you are. Life is about believing that you are a sinner who has been made beautiful in Christ. The family structure is not about you. The family structure is a base unit through which you can learn what it is to love God and to love one another. It's a base unit through which you can learn to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others. About stop serving yourself and starting to serve others. This is what the family is supposed to be. The smallest unit of interaction among believers wherein you can learn this ideal. That is then supposed to broaden to the way you come to church and then broaden to the way you live in society. Now, if your family doesn't look this way, then may I encourage you to adjust the culture of your family. Or if there's certain parts of your family that don't look this way, may I encourage you to adjust those parts of your family. Is your family the base unit through which your children are learning from your example as husband and wife and through teaching on a daily basis to set aside and to serve others with what they have? The foundation of the Old Testament law is what, as Jesus walked upon the earth? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the foundation of Old Testament law. This is the foundation of the Gospels. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the essence of God's call upon our life. Now, what our family can be, what our family ought to be, 
is the training grounds for that philosophy. To exemplify Christ by esteeming other better than ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be Christ-like. That we would live out a philosophy of esteeming other better than ourselves. And that parents would, would be actively engaged in helping their children learn this, not just through Bible studies, but through the way that the family is structured. We all know that, that we're naturally sinful, that we're naturally selfish, that we naturally want what is ours, and that we, we are predisposed toward that in the flesh. But that as believers, we're predisposed in the Spirit to the mind of Christ. Help us to submit to that mind and help us to create an environment where our children learn what it is to submit to that mind. Learn the power and the preeminence of serving others above ourselves. Help us to see not just our families this way, but help us to see the world this way. That we might reflect you into this world, into our church, into our homes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.